This podcast is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton. From the campus of the Wharton School in San Francisco, this is Launchpad on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. Here is Rob Conipier. Hello and welcome to Launchpad on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. I'm your host this week, Rob Conibier. I'm broadcasting live from Wharton's San Francisco campus. I'm a founder and managing director at Shasta Ventures, a leading venture capital firm where we focus on investing in early stage companies. So what is Launchpad? Launchpad is all about the ins and outs of planning a new business, raising the money you need, and making connections that count. We're live every Wednesday at 7 p.m. Eastern, 4 p.m. Pacific, if you have any comments or questions during today's show, give us a call. The lines are open. Our number is 844-WHARTON. That's 1-844-942-7866. I'm really excited about today's show. We have a couple of venture capitalists line up. Venture capitalists, as people in the industry know, always have a lot to say. And we start with, in the first hour from 4 to 5 o'clock, Tim Chang, a partner at the Mayfield Fund. And then in the second half, we have Eric Moore, a founder and managing director at Base Ventures, a former classmate of mine at Wharton. And he has a really interesting story about how he ended up in Silicon Valley and in venture capital. But I'm thrilled to welcome to the show my first guest, Tim Chang. Tim, thank you so much for joining me. That's an honor to be here, Rob. Thank you. So Tim is a veteran Silicon Valley venture capitalist. He is a managing director or managing partner at the Mayfield Fund. He invests in new technologies. He has been named to the Forbes Midas list of top technology investors several times and received a Gamification Summit Award for special achievement. So we had Rishi Garg, one of your partners on the show, yeah. about a year and a half ago. We had a, we had a great time when he was on the show. So we talked a little bit about the Mayfield Fund. Um, first off, is it the Mayfield Fund or is it Mayfield Fund? I think it's just Mayfield Fund. And you okay. know, the funny story about that is back in the day, Palo Alto, way before it was Palo Alto, I think technically had a township that was called Mayfield Township. And that's where that name Mayfield Bakery comes from. If you ever go to that Oh, area. sure. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah that's so, a famous spot. So that's the origin of it. So that's okay. the funny part. Yeah. That's where it comes from. So it's Mayfield Fund. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Well, great. So could you just give a quick elevator pitch for Mayfield? Yeah, uh, Mayfield has been around. We're about to celebrate our 50th anniversary. Obviously, I wasn't there <laughs> 50 years ago. I'm part of the fourth generation of leadership. But um, it was actually one of the first venture capital firms in the U.S. back when the birth of the industry happened in the late 60s, you know, with the SBIC Act and everything. And so Tommy Davis had founded it and um, had always specialized in investing in people first. That was always the motto from the beginning was Tommy used to say, Products don't make people, people make products, so let's focus on the people. And we've tried to honor that spirit to today, mostly focusing on Series A and B deals. Um, we invest out of funds that are usually 350 to 400 million, raised every four or five years. Um, and we are investing out of fund 15. So it's been a pretty long history. 15? Yeah, I mean, back in the day, these were companies like Compaq and Genentech and Atari and really old school names. Um, so there's been a long lineage since, probably close to four or 500 deals and hundreds of uh, IPOs and M&As over those generations. But something I am pretty proud of is that they were able to do the legacy planning from generation to generation. That's actually something that's really difficult in the venture capital industry is scaling across time and people. So it's one of the leading firms in Silicon Valley. It has a long history, half a century, which is pretty crazy to say, Atari, Compaq, and others. So what was your path to get to becoming one of the leaders of a fund like this, a leading venture capital firm. You're from Michigan. Mm. You grew up in Michigan. Maybe talk a little bit, go all the way back to where you started out and grew up. Yeah, yeah. I have a really weird path to this industry. I feel like a black sheep sometimes, kind of a bit of an outsider. But, um, you know, I'm second generation. My parents came to the U.S. Uh, to be Ph.D. students at UC San Diego. I think I was probably an accidental baby when my dad was a Ph.D. student. But um, we ended up in Michigan because that's where he found tenure at Michigan State University. And prior to that, my family lineage is kind of interesting because my great-grandfather is considered one of the founding fathers of modern Taiwan out of World War II, right? So there's a lot of history in government and um, the regulatory uh, positions uh, in my family lineage. My dad broke that because he went into academia, and we grew up pretty 
poor. We were like starving immigrants, that kind of thing. I remember going to McDonald's as a kid. My mom would be like, take home the extra ketchup packets and the extra forks, right? So oh, yeah. We grew up pretty poor with this. I didn't really think much about that. And, um, the and thing, this is in Michigan. This is in Michigan. And the thing is, um, I think with the academic immigrant mentality, it's very much a survival mindset. And so growing up, it was all about just get good grades, and that's all you need to worry about. And the thing is, it turns out that's lousy advice for those that would be interested in entrepreneurship or things like that later, right? Because it's really just about the security of landing So I'm a guessing job. you got pretty good grades, though. Not by choice. I had to, because otherwise, was like, you know, threat of like being spanked really heavy <laughs> and all these things. So it's classic tiger parenting that okay. I grew up under, right? But you got the good grades. Uh, I, I did. They pushed me so hard, I eventually learned to push myself, right? And so I did a lot of that. But I never had a thought as to what do I want to do or what do I like. It was just get good grades. That was the only operating playbook, right? And the thing is, that didn't allow for taking chances of like starting a company. I didn't even think that was a thing. All I knew was get a job. And so um, when I came out of engineering school, all I thought about was just get a job. But uh, when I started working as an engineer, I went to Japan I luckily made some friends who were entrepreneurs. They introduced me to the world of startups. So at night, we'd be running around Tokyo trying to create like the Craigslist of Tokyo and things like that. That's how I discovered, oh my gosh, you can start a company on your own. You, there's a there's a startup thing. And that introduced me to that world. And then eventually I went to Stanford MBA uh, program. Uh, at the, so so the, let's, let's rewind for a tiny bit. Yeah. So you're in Michigan. Mm-hmm. You're forced to get good grades. Yep. And I'm not quite at the in Japan figuring out entrepreneurship piece, yeah, yeah. but at the part of... What happened on Saturday when you were a kid? Uh, it was wake up early to go to Chinese school, not by choice, but we had to go to Chinese language school. And afterwards, we learned Chinese cultural activities. And then there'd be piano um, practice for recitals and that sort of thing. So oh, it was, so it was full-blown tiger was, parenting. It was tiger parenting. It was pretty regimented. And it was definitely expectations of like, you know, get good grades, win the blue medal at the recitals, all that kind of stuff. Okay. Yeah. So you did that, and then you went to engineering school at Michigan? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So not too far away. That's and right. And studied hard there. And, and which type of engineering did you end up doing? Uh, electrical engineering. And within that, I ended up picking control systems and um, robotics and industrial engineering. This was all, though, you know, early 90s. There was no internet. It was just starting to be born. So I played around with some of those kind of technologies back at the Advanced Technologies Lab, but I had no clue that you could do startups and internet. That wasn't even a, a thing in my mind. And um, maybe because there wasn't a lot of entrepreneurship. It wasn't the norm in Michigan. I think that would have been different maybe had I been at Stanford or other places where startups were popping up all the time. But in Michigan, we didn't have as many examples of that. And I think was Tony Fidel there at that time? I think he might have been. Uh, Larry Page was a year behind me. So you had the founder of Google. Oh, and Larry you know Page. who else was? Um, and you had the creator of the iPod. That's right. Tony that's right. Fidel was there as well. And I think Kevin O'Connor behind DoubleClick was also around that time. A, a big advertising network. Yeah, that's okay. right. That's right. So, but there there weren't many examples of entrepreneurs. Huh. You know, it wasn't it wasn't a standard thing. It was typically go to the job fair, get a job from General Motors or Ford because it was Michigan and those were the big employers. So you were kind of the outcast because you weren't looking to get the GM job. You were looking at this other crazy stuff. A little bit. I mean, honestly, my passions back then was playing music and like acting and like creative stuff. Okay. I, I felt like a little bit of an outsider because I did engineering because it was a technical trade. My parents said that you need a technical trade so you can get a job. My heart lay in like video games and creative things and acting and music. And so I spent all my time doing that. It's kind of a miracle I graduated because I felt like I was skipping class all oh, the time. video <laughs> games. What video games were you playing? Well, I started in 1980. My dad brought home an Apple II and I was like, what's that? And he said, it's a computer. I said, I want to play games. And he said, it's 1980. There's no computer game companies. Go program your own. So he chucked me an Applesoft manual. And that's why I learned to program because I wanted to play games. Oh, so you started writing your own games on an Apple II? Yeah, that's why I learned programming. It was specifically to play games. And ever since then, it was a lifelong love affair with video games. It was like Apple II. And then it was, remember the TRS-80, the Commodore 64, Super Nintendo, like all of those. And you were like $1,000, $2,000 in dollars those days, those which days. is really expensive. So it sounds like your parents had to sacrifice to get a computer like that for you to mess around with. Luckily, my dad was into hacking computers, so he would play with Apple IIs. For everything else, I had to go to the school computer lab. Do you remember those? Oh, yeah. No, I, <laughs> I, I remember that. So so you started to program on the Apple II, motivated around video games. So it sounds like you may have had a lifelong interest in video games because we'll come back around to that yeah, and, definitely. And, and where you've been investing there. So you graduated. How did you end up in Japan? This was a, a weird one. I um, 
Always had a fascination with Japan because I grew up reading anime and manga, and I was able to get one of the first um, Nintendo Famicom systems. This is Famicom. This is what they used to call Nintendo. Uh, you remember that uh, Nintendo console they had, the uh, the regular one, the uh, Super NES. That's sure. what they called it before then. So long I, before the Switch. Long before. So I got it in Taiwan, and they had the Japanese version. So I had to play all the video games in native Japanese. I spent one summer mastering Super Mario Brothers. Got to the end, but I couldn't read what the heck he was saying to the princess and I was like I need to learn Japanese someday so this is while you're a college student you're going through this is when this. I was like back in like middle school high school oh so your original fascination yeah, yeah, with yeah, Japan yeah. exactly okay. and then you know I'd, I'd grown up reading like Shogun and things like that so I was always interested in that samurai culture it's a pretty thick book I know but it was uh, pretty racy stuff too but the Japanese culture was so fascinating especially the anime manga stuff right so I minored in Japanese in college and it turns out that um, the US government was giving out fellowships so they gave me a full ride for a phd program in double e because at that time if you remember in the mid 90s japan was taken over right oh yeah it was the japan that can say no remember the best-selling yes. book yes, by yes, yes. i think it was the chairman of sony or somebody yeah. like that the japan that can say no that's right and they were buying up like hawaii and taking over all the different industries and the u.s government noticed every japanese engineer can at least read and write english but the converse is not true so they were giving out fellowships to get american engineers to study japanese so i was one of the first kind of recipients of those fellowships and then i did a summer internship in japan working for toyota and i just fell in love with living overseas so that kind of got hooked there okay so we'll come back to that if you're just tuning in i'm rob conybeer and you're listening to launchpad on sirius xm 132 business radio powered by the wharton school i'm here in the studio right now with tim chang one of the managing partners at mayfield fund in silicon valley so what was it like going and working for toyota Boy, that was like a whole alternate universe. Because back then, they had the whole lifetime employment model. They literally had a place called Toyota City. It's still there, outside Nagoya. There's Toyota dorms. And which part of Japan is that? I think people have an idea where Tokyo is. Is that outside of Tokyo? A couple hours just southwest of Tokyo, right? Okay. And so uh, they have literally Toyota supermarkets, Toyota schools, Toyota University, Toyota daycare, Toyota dorms, all of that. It's basically a vertically integrated city for all the employees because it's, it's just expected you live, work, die, you know, mate, uh, breed there oh, in that, right? you'd marry another Toyota worker. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh, you're kidding. Oh, yeah, because okay. that was the lifetime employment model before, okay. right? And so to live in that setting, it was just really, really... It was. Did they have, like, so Tinder Toyota? You know, did they have, like, dating apps at all, or it, they, that? They, they did it offline. So okay. it was kind of expected that you would often date, like, the OLs, the office ladies. And office ladies is a term in Japanese for, you know, uh, women who are assistants or secretaries or receptionists or whatever. Oh. And so that was very common uh, for that to so happen. So that was actually encouraged. It was highly encouraged. Okay, so you went over into this role. Was this all eye-opening? Had you been there before? No, my like, first wow, time. Wow, this is crazy. Yeah, it was my first real internship, summer job there, living in Toyota City, and my mind was blown. I was like, wow, this is incredible. This How is- good was your Japanese at that point? Uh, it was intermediate. But the thing about you know learning a foreign language, it's just not the same when you work on the ground in the field. And um, they use a lot of technical Japanese, which they didn't really teach us as much in school. So I was just trying to figure this stuff out, right? And I got to tell you something funny. I did not get You don't want to get the polarity wrong on different things in Mm-mm, a car. Totally. Okay. And then I didn't get any quarter because, you know, I look Asian, so I pass for Japanese. And I'd be trying my best to speak well, but people just look at me sometimes and say, like... Like you're you? slow and not yes. very smart. They thought okay. I was, like, mentally slow. Whereas, like, you know, if I was Caucasian, then I would have gotten a lot of points for effort, right? But I, I didn't get any leeway, so okay. that helped me improve quickly. <laughs> okay, so you did one summer there, yeah. came back, and were you thinking, hey, I love the automotive industry, I want to do this? Or Not necessarily. It's just I, I was like, wow, I love the working world, and I love um, you know Asia and Japan. And then um, I got a call from uh, General Motors. They were opening up General Motors Japan, so they recruited me out there. And that was what triggered me to drop out of my PhD program, take a master's, and head out to Tokyo to begin working. Okay. Yeah. So you did take it. Mm-hmm. And you went back. Was your Japanese a little better then? It got quick, quickly better in the like living there for the next few years. So I so spent you were almost there for five, a couple years. Almost five years there. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, and which city was that in? This was in Tokyo. So I worked for General Motors Japan, and then I got recruited to. Do you remember Gateway Computer Company? Sure. Yeah. So I was. Product. Those were the cows, right? Those were the cows. The cows were the logo. That's right. So it's kind of like a Dell equivalent that didn't survive. For exactly right. Inexpensive, configurable computers. That's right. Okay. That's right. 
So were that, you playing video games all in this time frame? Were you just trying out different ones in your spare time? Or I did play a lot of games in my spare time because I was still really into it and still trying to do the music thing and the acting thing. So my weekends and evenings were all like performing bands or like you know trying to book like theater gigs or whatever. And okay, yeah. oh that's right, you've been performing a long time. Yeah. yeah. So so you're in Japan and then Gateway mm-hmm. and was Gateway also in Japan? Yeah. Okay. They had just entered the market with Dell because prior to that. The market in Japan, they sold computers only through system integrators and retailers. And this was the first time they had direct sales, and that took the market by storm. So what was your role at Gateway? Um, originally, I came in to do community development, but their product manager for servers um, left, and so they had a, a gaping hole. And they're like, Tim, you want to try this? I'm like, I know nothing about product management. You need management. somebody right now yes. who speaks Battlefield, Japanese. Battlefield promotion, okay. exactly. Oh, that's so amazing. I fell into product management, not even by choice. But Were you I, like 26, 27 no, at the time? Exactly. That's the age at which you something terrifies you, yes. but the only real answer is yes. yes. And, I'll do it. Yeah, yes. I can do that. And then afterwards, you go, wow. Yes. Now what? Exactly. That's okay. an, exactly what's happened to me. And as career advice, I think if that ever pops up, say hell yes, because that's where you learn. You know, you don't really know what you're doing, but nobody knows that you don't know what you're doing, so you just give it a shot. And so at night, I would go to Tower Records, the only place you can get English magazines, and I furiously read like Harvard Business Review or whatever, trying to understand, what's this lingo these people are saying? <laughs> oh, I see. That was how you learned it, because you couldn't go onto the internet at the time. Right. It, it a lot of that stuff there. wasn't available. So I was just furiously trying to learn by doing, you know? Well, I think it's really interesting following your path here, because I have the good fortune of knowing some of the stuff that you do do now, we'll yeah, come yeah. back to, but... You had your interests all the way along, yeah. so you were kind of pursuing this somewhat unusual path, yeah. but at the same time, you were building your skills. And I think one of the most important things for people when they're working their way through a career is there's there are times when you just can't be completely logical. Right. You just have to say yes. Yeah, that's right. And um, even if you don't have a game plan or the parts don't seem to fit together, just have faith that you'll kind of find your own path. You'll make a weird mashup of the things that work for you. So... You were at Gateway for how long? Uh, for a couple of years there. Okay. Yep. And then you were talking earlier about the Stanford Graduate yeah. School of Business. So how did that come about if you were reading yeah. the Harvard Business Review? I realized I actually like business. And, you know, growing up technical, and I, I used to look down on quote-unquote business people. I was like, oh, business, you know, like that's not real stuff. That's not real challenge like engineering. But I realized through product management – I really liked it. It was creative. It was working with other people. It was team-based. So I kind of fell in love with it. I said, wow, if I want to do this business stuff, maybe I should learn business. <laughs> you know it's funny? When I was a kid, you were thinking about different things. You had the tiger parents. Yeah. The thing I wanted more than anything else, I wanted a briefcase. Wow. I just, I wanted a briefcase. You know where some people are yeah. like, you know, I want to have a car or yeah. a go-kart or whatever. Yeah. I just wanted to have a briefcase. So you're wired more for More than it. anything else. That's and awesome. Now I don't have a briefcase, really, but... <laughs> <laughs> Anyhow, so you ended up, you applied, did you apply to several schools? Yeah, or? yeah, it was okay. the standard, you know, HBS and Wharton, this, that, and the other. And Okay, so you end up at the GSB. Yeah. You go out to California, first time in California? Or first? Yeah, first okay. time living there. Yep. Wow, okay. And you moved straight from Japan then? Culture shock, total culture shock. Yeah. Ah, okay. Yeah. And you flew in the back of the bus, back near the bathroom somewhere, exactly. a little tiny seat. Exactly, like then, $100 to my name kind of thing. Oh, really? <laughs> well, because okay. it was so expensive to live in Tokyo, I didn't save any money. And so I got to GSB without much savings and also without a network because I'd been living and working in, in Tokyo. Not that many GSBers came from Tokyo. And um, it, it was definitely kind of a culture shock because so many people – do you remember when you go to an MBA program, a lot of people already know each other. They were similar class at Morgan Stanley or McKinsey or whatnot. So all those social networks were already developed, and I was like the total outsider. Oh, wow. Yeah. Okay. So you come in, and were you living on the campus or yeah. off the campus? Yeah, on the campus. Okay. Yeah. So you were in a dorm, basically. Yeah. Did you have a room? No, not no back then. Okay. No. I guess in grad school, roommates is a little odd unless it's like your significant other. Well, and then I have to admit to you, I uh, left campus second year because remember the dot-com boom was happening then. And I was like, I want to be in San Francisco. So I second oh. year, I left campus to live so this in is 99. SF. 99. Okay. So I was commuting down from SF because I just wanted to be around the energy of dot-coms. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So you did. So you did that. You graduated. And who are some of the famous people in your class? Because I'm sure there were some famous Jeff people. Jeff Fleur. Uh, well, he's famous because he dropped out and did StubHub. Okay. Right. He's Wharton undergrad. Yeah. Way. Yeah. Just that's so right. you know. Okay. That's right. All right. There's some, yeah, there were some great people. So he's the founder of StubHub. Uh, had- Jen Siebel, who is uh, our first lady of uh, California now, married oh. to Gavin Newsom. Okay. Hadn't yeah. seen the news yet. It's been a busy day. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, exactly. Oh, okay. 
So you 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 did graduate, yeah, and you graduated in two thousand two thousand one. So I was class. So of that 01. was right into the teeth of the technology downturn. You probably could not have picked a worse year to graduate. Totally, one third of our class, their job offers evaporated. Actually, by the time of graduation, because all the startups went under. So it was literally right into the bust. So where'd you end up? I got recruited to a uh, emerging venture capital firm called Gabriel Venture Partners, a pretty small fund. And um, luckily, you know, they stayed intact. So that's how I fell into VC. I got recruited into it. And if I'm being really candid with you, Rob, um, I didn't know what venture capital was before business school, but I remember classmates saying, oh, it's the hardest industry to get into. And so naturally, like some tiger parent kid, I was like, okay, I want to try to get into that. But I didn't really ask a deeper why or to what end. It was just like, it seems hard to get into. I got to try. And so I kind of fell into it that way. Um, and then 9-11 was my second day of work. Oh, wow. <laughs> yes. That's pretty crazy. And where were their offices? Um, in Redwood Shores. So, you know, like near Oracle, right in that area. Yeah. So anybody that's flown into SFO, yeah. chances are if you're on the left side of the plane totally. and you look down it was right there. and you see these really ugly pools of water. Yep that are all these colors you wonder like are there toxic chemicals right, down right, there right, right. and then you see redwood shores kind of juts out into that right that's exactly right okay so anybody that's flown into sfo on the left side has seen has where seen you work exactly okay right so that's there. where gabriel so what was the first day like so you show up you've got this shiny fresh mba you go in to be a, a venture capitalist i don't know if you had a briefcase with you or not yeah i did, I and, did at that and, time yep. and you went in what, what was that first day like it was being completely clueless. I was totally clueless. I, you know, the lingo they were using, all these were things. Were you like, scared? Kind of, because, you know, again, just like when I took that product management job, I didn't think I was qualified. I didn't know the, the space. I didn't know what was going on. It was sort of, again, kind of fake it till you make it, you know? So I felt like that's what it was. And it was so interesting because immediately sitting through New Deal meetings and people using lingo and terms and acronyms that I hadn't heard before, like back then, ASPs was a big thing. You remember that? Oh, yeah, yeah, an yeah. application service, service provider. provider. Right, which is now kind of sad SAS, when right? people talk software as a service. It's interesting. I remember my first day when I started at New Enterprise Associates, yeah. one of these mainline yep. old school venture capital firms and i went in to this meeting and an enormous conference room yep. and the founders of juniper networks yep. which is a multi-billion dollar networking company today came in to present their plan back mm -hmm. when it was like two people mm -hmm. and i remember them talking about the business yep. and i remember after they left the room then all the partners are talking about the due diligence yes. and do we invest in this company etc and it turned out to be one of the most consequential, important investments yeah. that NEA ever made for, sure. for a variety of reasons. But they start talking about this guy, Tony Lee, mm -hmm. who was one of the leading routing software experts mm -hmm. in the world mm -hmm. and how he submitted his resignation at Cisco. Mm. He literally took nails and a hammer and he scrawled his resignation because he was so upset and he took it to the door the VP of engineering, wow. and he, he was holding nails in his teeth, and he was like driving nails into the door. That's I quit, crazy. That's I amazing. leave, I've had it with Cisco. Wow. That was my first day in venture capital. That's amazing. And I remember thinking, wow, this is like reality TV. Yeah, yeah. I had that notion too because I thought it was going to be really academic, like evaluating market sizings and all, building models and all that, but it was almost more armchair psychology. It was like trying to read people and understand people. Yeah, like – how stable are these people, perhaps? Exactly. Okay. So and, you start uh, learning that, but you're yep. kind of watching at the same time, too. Yeah. You're kind of afraid to say too much. Exactly, exactly. But, you know, you feel like you have to show that you're smart and trying, so you have to, like, pipe in with comments, right? That sort of thing. So we'll ask a little more about that. If you're just tuning in, I'm Rob Cunningbeer, and you're listening to Launchpad on Sirius XM 132, business radio powered by the Wharton School. I'm here in the studio right now with Tim Chang, a managing partner at Mayfield Fund. So... At what point in your tenure at Gabriel did you do your proverbial first deal, mm. make your first investment? A couple of years in, it was a wireless chip company called Jala in San Diego. And my whole Jala? thesis- Jala? Yeah, J-A-A-L-A-A. -A -A. I did it with David Britz at ComVentures, if you remember that name back in the okay. day. Okay. But um, my whole thesis I was trying to build was, I had come from Japan, cell phones were already popular there, and I was thinking, this has to happen in the U.S. So my entire thesis was, <laughs> basically cell phones are going to get adopted in the U.S., and let's right. follow that, that yeah. movie. <laughs> People really like them in Japan. They got to right. like them here, right? Okay. So, 
that was my thesis. And I was just trying to study what are all the parts needed? Well, you're going to need chips and then transistors and amplifiers and all that stuff. And then you'll need handsets and, you know, infrastructure. So it's basically just trying to map that ecosystem and seeing, I wonder when this stuff will kick in here. Who are the companies to do that? So it was, it was a bit Did of a Did you go landscape. out to find it? Um, yeah, yeah. I would, I would always go to those conferences like 3GSM and uh, CTIA, and it was just trying to learn the landscape and then trying to get These a are sense. all these really techie conferences Super, yeah. for people that are going deep in wireless Telecom or and semiconductors, wireless. the, the exactly. guts of the internet. Exactly. Okay. So I was just first trying to learn the landscape and then trying to get a sense of where are the holes and what's needed. So you track them down, and did you send them an email or call them? How did you make contact with them? Um, usually I would try cold calling or emailing, and I realized that didn't work so well. And then it was sort of trying to figure out, um, hey, can someone make an intro for me or you know, uh, get a warm intro there? Yeah, because you're a junior person in the industry totally. trying to get that industry. Yeah. Yeah. So you know what I tried, Rob? I um, I realized I was kind of introverted. I was never really good at networking. It wasn't natural for me. So I used to build Excel spreadsheets of if I had a good network in the mobile industry, these are the people and companies I would know. And I would literally work backwards. I'd hunt them down based on who's speaking at what panel at what event. I'd go to those events and then just target those people and try to then say hi in person. But then um, I would try to wow them with my industry knowledge. Later on, I learned when I would take them out for lunch, they didn't want to talk about the industry. They want to like talk about why they're having marital problems or the you know, <laughs> why, why they hate their job and what do they want to do next. <laughs> and that was a big lesson for me that people don't necessarily just want to talk shop. They just want to build authentic connection. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah, it's very it's 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 very interesting. And one of the things that I see in what you're talking about is the ways in which venture investors, yep. venture capitalists connect with the companies that they ultimately invest in. And there's on one hand there's the referral. Yeah. And that's where somebody refers somebody in. It's rarely cold calls, but it's either a referral in, like, please meet with this company, you ought to meet with this company, or a lot of the time, investors will track down companies. That's right. And, and they will proactively do it. That's and right. those are kind of the two strategies. Yep. And it's part of the reason why I think with companies at an earlier stage, you do want to get out and network, yeah. is because you want to be known so that somebody's actually asking for the introduction. And it is That's a right. good sign when a, a venture investor is asking to meet you. Yeah, I think so. Absolutely. And it was also tricky for me because, remember, I was a young nobody. I didn't have a network. I didn't work at a famous company or found something. So I had to go create that deal flow. Whereas if you are the founder of a successful company, you probably have hundreds of people hitting you up all the time that already know you. So that's when you have strong inbound deal flow or people flow as opposed to when you're young and wet behind the years and new to the industry. You have to, like, hustle and go create it. Yeah, so in a minute or two, we're going to take a really short break. Yep. But we'd love to make the connection to Mayfield, mm -hmm. and we'll talk about Mayfield sure. and what you're doing now and going forward cool. after the break. But how'd you end up at Mayfield? Uh, funny, it's back to relationships. I worked with Naveen Chada, who had come out of SoftBank Ventures at that time. He joined Gabriel as a partner. We got along really well. We were both relatively early in our careers, and we kind of just hit the pavement hustling together. He got later recruited to Mayfield by Yogan Dalal to be the next generation of leadership. I went to Norwest, and then... After five years at Norwest, he called me and said, hey, let's get the band back together. And so it was because basically we had a prior working relationship. Somebody that liked you, respected you and the work mm -hmm. you were doing. And how did you end up at Norwest? Um, I was recruited to Norwest because they were building up their consumer practice. And uh, um, I had a friend who introed me there, and it was an opportunity to work with them, and they were really good guys. So one question I need to ask before the break. You've done a bunch of gaming investments over time. Yep. When was the first gaming investment you made? That was probably Lumosity in brain training games. One of my first deals at Norwest. This is like way back 2009 or something like that. And this was before brain training was kind of a big thing, but they were one of the first there. So it was um, games online and mobile to help you improve your mental cognitive performance. Was there a moment where... You went from doing the logical, we're going to find the silicon and the cell phones are going to be here too. Oh my God, I get to invest in games. Yes, it was like, definitely Where you're that. like, wow, I love games. I wrote games. Yes. I played games. Yes, it definitely was. Do you remember that moment? It was. And it was when I saw companies like Lumosity. And then the other big one was when Facebook opened up the F8 platform for third-party apps. And then when uh, Apple allowed other third-party apps um, in the App Store. That's when I was like, oh, these are new channels for games. And it was like a light went off in my, my mind and my heart. Because when you get to invest in things you personally like and know, it's a world of difference. It's it's I think it's it's like the version of flow in work when what you're passionate and know about and are good at, you get to do, right? 
And that's, oh, yeah. it's so fortunate when you get to do that because you don't always have the choice of choosing exactly what you work on. Yeah. And did you, how many gaming investments did you make at Norwest? Um, a few, I, the three or four, including Playdom, which Disney bought, and Moco, which uh, DNA bought, Lumosity, and, and a couple others. Yeah. And these are all companies that had huge outcomes. And uh, pretty quick ones. So they had pretty interesting IRR, but um, it, it, do you remember that window? It was a really short window of three years when a bunch of like gaming deals exploded, like Zynga and Playdom, these guys. And there was, well, you became known as a gaming guy really quickly. Yeah. Yeah. Cause Out there, of nowhere. There was only half a dozen of us. Because before that, do you remember? Gaming was always viewed as these are content businesses. VCs don't invest in content plays, and that was the until they started to make a lot of money. Right. Zynga was taking exactly. off, and then Rick Thompson with what he did with with Playdom was exactly. unbelievable. Exactly, and as you know, Rick Thompson is He's also great. a Wharton grad. That's right. He was my year. Was he really? Oh yeah, I love Rick. I'm a big fan of his. Yeah, I remember having lunch with Rick one day, and he was saying, "Well, I'm working with this guy on this this thing, and it just seems to just be taking off." When yep. he was early days of Playdom. Yep. Yeah. Yep. Of course, we made a mistake and didn't invest. So we were talking about gaming, and we were talking about these companies that came along and rode on top of the Facebook mm-hmm. platform that were real rocket ships. And were the companies that you invested in there, were those the first couple rocket ships that you were involved with? Yeah, basically. Um, do you remember Zynga grew on Facebook and played them initially grew on MySpace? And then MySpace kind of collapsed, and so everybody had to be on Facebook. And then NGMoco was one of the first on iPhone. So when you invested in these companies, mm-hmm. NGMoco and others, mm-hmm. how, how did you come across them in general um hanging out at gaming events you'd hear who is the hotness and um also a lot of game entrepreneurs know each other because it's kind of a fairly small circle and so as you would network in and just ask around you can kind of hear some rumors of who's doing well whose titles taking off or this hot team is leaving ea and they're going to start something up you know one of the first in that uh, area was mitch lasky with jamdet okay because uh, he was activision producer and i i'd missed that one but that was one of the very first exits in mobile gaming so when you say hang out at a gaming conference what does that mean? It's like, literally... what's the scene look like? Where are these conferences? <laughs> Who are the people? So there were the old school ones. This was like E3, Dice, you know, those kinds of uh, big industry gaming shows. But those were focused on consoles. It was PlayStation, Xbox. You started to have these new meetups like Social Gaming Summit. Remember Charles Hudson, our okay. mutual friend, who would do those? Yeah. So you go to these smaller meetups that were comprised usually of founders and um, executives at some of these next-gen companies. And those were all typically more startups. So the big ones that people would think about would be E3, mm-hmm. where you have the big consoles, and that's down in L.A. That's right. And you would have, basically, you'd be selling to, I'm guessing, the channel. It was all distribution. Yeah, distribution, that's deciding right. how many copies of the new yes. game they'd want to buy. That's exactly right. Okay. But And so you wouldn't see as many of the younger startups there because it was catering to the old industry. Instead, it was the newer meetups that were starting to pop up that you'd go to. And um, what was really cool there is they'd literally be 20-something first-timer founders just hacking together and things would take off like Mafia Wars or whatever. Or it would be folks thinking of like, hey, this platform's promising. I'm going to quit my big job at EA and go do that. So how did you decide to start going to these events? And how did you pick them? And what do you do when you go to it? Uh, I would ask around where founders are going and where they meet up, right? And they would just tell you, I'm going to this thing, I'm going to that thing. And so I'd go. And then um, after a while, I'd get invited to be a panelist on these and so you'd speak about the trends in that area. So that, that was pretty helpful. But when I would go, it would basically be trying to uh, line up a schedule of founders you already want to meet. So you kind of know who's going. You check out the speaker list, the attendees, the advisory board. Those are your first hit targets to go oh, see. Oh, so you do homework before yeah. you went. Because that's how you be more productive. I used to treat conferences like I would just show up and just bump into people but that's never productive it's totally random right and so a strategy would be if I do well at this conference I'll come out with these five relationships and so if you can pre-target them then it's a lot more productive and how did you connect with NGMoco specifically? Uh, NGMoco, they had a Series A from Bing Gordon, so I had reached out to Bing, but also had uh, some mutual friends who connected us as well. Was he a partner at Kleiner Perkins at He had time? just joined at that time. Okay. And so he um, And his fame was? Zynga and NGMoco, yeah. Okay. But before that, what was his operating role? Chief Creative Officer at Electronic Arts. Okay. Yeah. So he came from a leading yes. game. That's right. 
studio. That's right. And that's kind of the path in venture capital. I always felt like a black sheep because I kind of came bottoms up as a nobody, whereas a lot of partners come in with track records because they were a founder of some successful company or they're a big-time executive out of Juniper or Cisco or something like that. So their networks come with them. So they already have that network. They already have that network. Okay. Right. So you're in the midst of all this. You invest in NG Moco. Did you lead uh, the subsequent round? Yes. The Series B round? Yeah, that's right. And was that competitive? Uh, it was. There were you know, other firms looking at it. But at that time, it still hadn't been so hot that there were dozens of firms looking for gaming deals. So it was still that stigma of gaming as a content play. Right? Yeah. Well, it is definitely one of these areas where venture capitalists are manic depressive because you see this enormous round right. in Riot Games. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, the maker of Fortnite yep. that everybody's heard of, but they might not have heard of Riot. Right. Enormous round. But literally, you would ask anybody about gaming say six months ago and they say I have no interest in exactly exactly there are no opportunities there you know you have this manic depressive it's true cycle it's true it's weird because sometimes your best investments are in areas that are deemed cold or uninvestable by other people right Um, but you could be wrong (laughs) and then meanwhile you have all this froth and frenzy around something like oh the scooters the scooters uh, industry or something and everyone piling into that so which is the first big outcome for you what put you on the map got the attention of the Midas list, the Forbes Midas list. I think it was probably Playdom, and although it wasn't a huge multiple, just I think it happened pretty quickly, and it was pretty sizable at that time. And then just practically less than a year later, NG Moco happened as well, so it was probably the speed of that that, that probably got the attention of that. But having been on it now, I also realized the Midas list, too, it's kind of a gamified system as well. There's <laughs> There are hacks to there are hacks move to your way it. up. Okay. It's like the New York Times bestseller. You can hack your way onto it, too. Okay. I see. I've I've heard about some of these things, but anyway. So, but you've been named several times to the list, right? Just twice. Just twice. Yeah. Just twice. Well, okay. Pretty big deal. It's a huge honor. Um, when I was younger in uh, my started my VC career, I remember thinking, man, if I get on that someday, it'd be amazing. So it used to be an aspiration. After getting on it, though, and falling off of it, it was interesting to learn to let go of that validation. And, <laughs> you know, because, and This is a symptom of me. I grew up with Tiger Parents, so all I ever knew was how to get external validation. But the real question is, actually, how do you want to play? What do you want to do? And what is winning for you? Now, it's like after you've been on a minus, okay, do you want to stay on it? Is that your win? Or is it um, another, you know, vector that you choose? You know, the thing that crosses my mind, not knowing your parents, but hearing the story, I kind of wonder whether your parents said anything about it when you joined the list, or they said something when you fell off the list. They were really proud of me when I made it, and I think it was because for them that was a sign of validation, like, oh, this person's good at what they do. Honestly, before then, I don't think they fully understood my job. Right. <laughs> but when I could point at this article, I think, you know, they yeah. they saw that, oh, this must mean something. And remember those games <laughs> I was programming? It kind of came in handy and yeah. it's worked out pretty well. Yeah. So you've you've done this and then in your spare time as 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 I've seen, I've seen you heard, I should say, you perform. Yeah, yeah. You know, how how did you end up getting into performance and maybe talk a little bit about your your side hustle there with your band. So music was a interesting love-hate relationship. As a Tiger Parent kid, I didn't have a choice. I was chained to the piano learning classical music I didn't really relate to. Oh, they didn't hand you a guitar. Uh-uh. And so okay. that changed in high school. I saw Back to the Future. Marty McFly goes back in time, introduces rock guitar, gets the girl. I was like, I want to be that dude. So to my parents' <laughs> chagrin, I quit piano. I get myself a guitar. I teach myself guitar. I'm sitting there listening to the radio, trying to pick up like Led Zeppelin ACDC tunes by myself. And uh, the the piano background actually made it easier to learn guitar and immediately i got formed bands why because i wanted to get dates right that's why where was this was this michigan this is in michigan yep and then you took the guitar with you to to japan Japan. and and, it stayed with me all my whole life and it kind of became an identity for me because um growing up in brighton it was tough you know i was one of only two asians in the whole school five six hundred kids i I faced racism and bullying and stuff like that but the the guitar helped though this is what happened. So the guitar made you cool. Yeah. Okay. Because do you remember you'd, you'd have those school assemblies back in the day, right? Sure. The Game Changers junior year, my high school band played the Brighton High School school assembly. And when we did, you know, Led Zeppelin or Joe Satriani or whatever, then suddenly the people used to torment me. Freebird. Yeah. They became my buddies. And suddenly it was like these burnouts who used to like torment me and be like, dude, can I take guitar lessons from you? And so it was, it was a really cool way to find an identity. So... So if you're just tuning in, I'm Rob Connybeer, and you're listening to Launchpad on Sirius XM 132, business radio powered by the Wharton School. I'm here in the studio right now with Tim Chang, who is a managing partner at Mayfield Fund. 
So what's your outlet for music today? I perform with three bands, um, Coverflow, which is all tech executives and founders. And there we play, you know, conferences. We start off at like TechCrunch and the Lobby Conference and all these things. And so we primarily play at big conferences. And these days we play to raise money for nonprofits like KIPP schools or whatnot. That's top 40 um, or old school rap in 80s. Um, I have a band called uh, Black Mahal, which is like a Punjabi hip hop version of the Black Eyed Peas. Black Mahal? Black Mahal. It's okay. Punjabi hip hop. Like the Taj Mahal, but, but black. The black Mahal. Okay. So, so that's uh, yeah, that's literally Punjabi hip hop. Our, our lead rapper Vijay Chatha, who happens to be one of the top PR execs in the valley. He has, oh yeah, he's been on the show. Vijay's awesome. Yeah, he's a badass freestyle rapper. Actually, I had so, no idea, but I can completely see that he's okay. really good. So Black Mahal, Coverflow, and, and then uh, a live electronic music act called Rainbow Party. So we're trying oh. to play like EDM, but live as a band with electronic instruments. Is that a new effort? Yeah, it's a newer effort. Yeah. How's it working out? Too early to tell? Um, it's a lot of fun. We've gotten to play some you know, pretty big parties here and there. But what I figured out, what made me happy with this, I realized the business model is not trying to like make money or get a record deal. It's just to like play for friends and be of service. So that was a big learning for me is when I was younger, I literally tried to be a pro musician. And I had a band in Tokyo. We were going for it. We got a development deal with Sony. And I read the terms. And I was like, this is horrible. This is the worst business contract ever. And it broke my heart because I realized is like, wow, I thought this was a life dream. But actually, this will be the worst decision ever. And upon turning that down, that's when I went to Stanford also. But it was a big lesson that what you love to do versus how you make money don't always correlate. In fact, maybe you're happiest if you can decouple them. Decouple them? Yeah. Okay. M meaning, like, let's say you're really passionate about art or acting or something like that. If you counted on that for your living, you might have a pretty miserable life. Oh, you might not enjoy it as much. Yes. Uh, case in point, we were the house band at the Hard Rock Hotel in Bali once, and having to play Give Me One Reason by Tracy Chapman for the 20th time in a row <laughs> made me hate music. I wanted to quit music completely. I just wanted to kill myself. And that's when I realized, oh, my God, if what you love to do as a creative outlet is tied to a paycheck, you're not in control of what you do. And the things you have to do to get that paycheck might make you hate what it is you used to love. Well, now I have to ask you a question because I've heard you perform with Coverflow. Is there a song you get a little tired of playing, but the audience always loves, and you just have to play it again? Is it like Stairway or Freebird, or is there something that's a crowd pleaser? You're like, oh, I got to play it again. We do an 80s uh, hip-hop medley. It's kind of like the— you Oh, know it's what, a medley? Yeah, like you know how— like, oh, I can't uh, stand medleys. You're right, right, right. Yeah, and okay. it's like 15 minutes long of every great 80s hip-hop song. And but so, the audience always loves of it? Of course. because They go crazy? Yeah, because they know all the lyrics, right? So yeah. when you're playing Vanilla Ice and all this stuff. <laughs> yeah, and then you have um, the Indian Elvis, right? Yes, Raj Kapoor. Raj Kapoor is— the Indian Elvis. He is an amazing showman. He's an incredible front person. I, okay. I have a lot of respect for him because that's a skill to get people to like you know interact and. And, and he's respond. now the chief strategy officer at, at Lyft. Lyft, and he's killing and it. He there. was a partner with you at Mayfield. at Mayfield. That's right. And then before that, what was it that he he founded? Uh, was it? Snapfish. Um, Snapfish. Snapfish. Yeah, yeah that's one right. of the early photo sharing and, that's right. and printing companies. That's right. So, how do you get together and practice? Where do you find the time to practice, or do you just kind of? We practice usually uh, only two weeks before each gig, usually uh, 9.30 p.m. after the kids go down to 1 a.m. in this crappy little studio called Secret Studios in San Francisco. Oh. Yeah. So, But it's a professional studio. Yeah, it's a professional studio. And you all show up. We all show up. And you schedule it a ways in advance. And do you put the set list together then? Or? We literally do it on the fly. And uh, here's the thing. The band members in CoverFlow, um, they're all you know pretty respected folks. Ethan Beard from Facebook, Christian Segerstraw from Super Evil Megacorp, and they're all really skilled musicians. And the problem with that is that we get lazy because we know <laughs> we can learn any song on demand in real time. No one rehearses. No one practices. We basically show up, figure it out real time, and then in slap, the rehearsal. Yes, and slap okay. it together. And that's the problem with being just good enough because you don't work hard because you know you can skate by. <laughs> I see. But then it's more fun that way, too. Kind unless, of. Yes. Unless for whatever reason it doesn't come together that night. And miraculously, that it is... always comes together just like one rehearsal before the show. But it's kind of funny. I just view it as like, man, this is like music. Procrastination. <laughs> Where could people go if they're listening right now? They want to hear about CoverFlow after the show. Where do they go to get to? Uh, we have a page on, on uh, Facebook, and okay. I think we even have some YouTube videos up. So oh, if you yeah. Just like yeah. search for CoverFlow Band, like you might see a couple of those. So coming back to Mayfield, we finally had the pleasure of working together yeah. with you because you were kind enough to send me an email about two and a half years ago. That's right. And also to one of my colleagues, Todd Francis, yeah. inviting us to co-invest in what's now Tonal. That's right. 
It's effectively Peloton for strength training. That's right. Launched recently. Maybe talk a little bit about your interest in fitness tech and where that came from. Yeah, that comes from, again, personal interest. Um, in addition to video games, I've always been really interested in, like, quantified self and body hacking and things like that. And um, <laughs> this will be embarrassing, but it's a personal story. Um, I didn't get into fitness at all until my mid-20s. Late, I was on a layover on a business trip and in Hong Kong airport. Were you overweight? I was never overweight. I was the skinny, scrawny guy that people would make fun of in school. Oh, just no muscle. No, Yeah, nothing. Okay. I was the wimpy guy. And so the wimpy Asian book nerd, uh, bookworm nerd, right? And so I'm looking at the magazine rack, and what I realize is there's never any Asian underwear models for men. <laughs> and I was like, it can't be that hard. And so I just I, – I dared myself to see could I – like get in that shape become an underwear model or be you know close enough in shape okay. to do that and yeah. so it was just an experiment to try it and that began um a lifelong journey learning about fitness but then that led to nutrition and all this other stuff and so it's something i've been kind of exploring for the last you know couple decades now and um it I, it just that became endlessly fascinating because it turns out it was less about working out it was mostly about food right uh the nutrition the fasting your timing all these sorts of things and it's it's kind of like video games. You can deeply nerd out on it and like min max different aspects. So and... you invested in Basis, yeah, as I recall. That's right. And this was one of the I think it was the first watch that could yes. tell your yeah. heart rate. Was that's right. It? First okay. continuous heart rate one before wearables was a term. Before right? people even thought Apple should build a watch. Exactly. Exactly. So this extended from that because I was so fascinated with like. You know who the original body hackers are? It's bodybuilders. They know everything about their resting metabolism and sort of their blood glucose refresh rates and all this stuff. They are the nerdiest of all. They know exactly how to time what kind of macros to take at what time of the day to get exactly the result they want. And so that kind of turned me on to, man, what if you knew about your heart rate and your heart rate variability and all this kind of stuff? How did you come across Basis? Do you remember uh, Summit Series? So the Summit Series is a conference uh, for young founders. The, one of the first ones in Miami, I met a young entrepreneur named Nadim Kassam. He was a young hustler, came out of the nightlife industry. He didn't know anything about traditional entrepreneurship, didn't have the traditional background, but he had a patent from DARPA. DARPA originally developed this patent to track biosignals of soldiers in real time, just like in that movie Aliens. Remember? When oh, the, yeah. Yeah. When you could see like the heart rate. Oh, yeah. Thing. They're getting chased by one of the aliens yes. right now. Okay. So he inherited this this patent and didn't know what to do with it. And he painted this picture of, I'd love for a device to be able to know your heart rate and all these signals in real time. And I fell in love with that vision. And, um, and I, you're at the conference? I'm at the conference. Is this one of the boat ones? Just before the boat. This was Summit before Miami the before the boats. Before they did the cruise ships. Okay. And so I took it to my partners in the And Northwest. were you guys just at a, like a bar one night or was it during the day? I think or? it was just the meetup that night. You okay. Know? And then... Um, and you just randomly talked to him? Yeah, yeah. Okay, and he just started talking about this tech. And, that's right. And you started riffing off each that's other. That's right, that's right. And that's I, interesting. I totally fell in love with the idea. But here was the challenge. Totally non-traditional background, had never done a startup before, didn't come from sort of the right pedigree. I brought him to, to my partners at Norwest, and they're like, this guy's unbackable. There's nothing here. There's no team. And so uh, I embarked for a year on virtually assembling a team and incubating it and literally trying to handpick people. I remember grabbing Bharat Vasan out of Electronic Arts and uh, Jeff Halove and a bunch of other folks and putting together, a, like trying to scrap I together. I still wish you hadn't gone after Jeff. Oh, that's right. I feel, <laughs> we'll come back to that. I feel bad about that. That's true. That <laughs> but is Jeff true. ran it. Yes, he did. And he had a lifelong interest in this category. So you put the team together. So you were very yeah. involved with putting it all together. But I had, didn't have a dollar in it yet. It was yeah. literally a labor of love. And um, that was a lesson I do for remember me. when I found out about it because Jeff was running a company that I was on the board of at the time. Was he still at iFi at that and time? And I, I don't know if you and I had ever met. No, I don't But I remember that. when Jeff came and broke the news to me uh, that he was leaving to go join this company, yeah. this fitness company. Yeah. It's like I looked at the board and I saw this guy, Tim Chang, and I'm like, isn't this what is this gaming guy doing? Yeah, stealing a CEO of a company of a board I'm on right now. My hope is to make it back to you with Tonal. Oh no, it's all good. I, I'm it's hoping Tonal will more than. But make it's up funny for because it. the valley is a very small place that way. It okay, really is. So you put this together, you put the pieces together, and yeah. then what happened? Um, I was able to get it to a fundable shape, and um, bless them, my partners at Norwest gave me the green light to to lead that Series A. Um, but it was so off spec in so many ways, and it literally was kind of like a virtual incubation. But that taught me a lot about you know if a deal isn't fun from the get-go, you can make it fundable. You can assemble the right people. You can put a lot of the pieces together to create something that is I, I find that stage of venture capital actually really, really interesting yeah. because it is one area where you could be experienced and connected. Yep. And for a period of about three or four months, 
you can get actively engaged. You can make a lot of introductions. Yep. You can help with some of the early strategy. And I think in a lot of ways, investors like to puff up their chests about how they can help later on. Yeah. But to a large extent, I think that once companies get going and you have a team in place, the die is largely cast. It's cast. And then it's a question of, is the CEO working out? Yep. You kind of coach and help, et That's cetera. Right. Or do we need to make changes in the team? That's right. That's probably our biggest and bluntest tool we can use. And I mean, even the example tonal, some of those intros you guys made early on, those were seminal. I mean, those are game-changing to be able to bring, you know, like a uh, Woody, Woody Skull yeah. to the board, yeah. right? Because he was the chief business officer at Fitbit exactly. and had a lot of experience around consumer businesses joining Tonal to help out. Exactly. And I would argue, like, that little intro probably helped set the company on a new trajectory. You know what I mean? Yeah. So we, we've got about three three minutes. Where did Basis end up? And then I'd love to go into, what are you looking at now? What's interesting sure. to you now? We had a successful exit. We sold Basis to Intel for uh, $100 million ish or more than that but um we got uh tripped up because here's the lesson we learned we over engineered it we tried to put too many features in and it became really hard to manufacture because we weren't able to manufacture it at scale we couldn't meet demand and so uh we ended up selling the company before it could meet its full potential but in a way it was um good because uh wearables became kind of a you know bloodbath after fitbit was the big winner but after that there yeah. weren't a whole lot of yeah uh, you had pebble was a shooting star mm-hmm that's right. Big lesson from that was try to do device as a service. Try to have a recurring subscription model, which is what we're doing at Tonal now. So we have about a minute and a half. What are you looking at now? What's interesting? Big one, how to use technology to save us from ourselves. What I mean by that is that our first act of technology created infinite choices, infinite things to buy, eat, infinite newsfeed. I think we can't control our digital addictions anymore. We need technology to almost save us and play nanny for ourselves and our impulses. So you're actively looking for things there? Yeah. Are you going out proactively? Yeah, but potentially incubating stuff again. But quick example, let's say your um, Alexa talked to all your other devices in your home, knew your schedule, and it said, Rob, you said you, to me you want eight hours of sleep. It's 11 p.m. I know you're binge-watching Game of Thrones, but your first meeting is at 7. Oh, that's an interesting Alexa skill. Like that. It's really like self-impulse management because I think that's the challenge. We're all digitally addicted, and we don't know how to get out of it. That would be an interesting Alexa skill if you had something that actually talk to you and and manage just your popped life. in like a nag and or turned off the power to your house to make you go to sleep <laughs> <laughs> okay and uh 30 seconds here any other areas uh actually looking again at things that hopefully help humanity a big one consciousness technology it sounds kind of crazy and hippie but i i really think that without understanding our level of self-awareness and our level of consciousness and empathy we're just going to keep using newfangled technologies to get paid made or laid and those aren't good for humanity <laughs> okay so you're doing, looking to do good, moving on from the gaming a little bit. I have some karmic debt to pay. <laughs> <laughs> so, Tim, thanks for joining me today. Where can people go to find out about what you're working on and learn more about Mayfield? Oh, just Mayfield.com. I think we have a team page there and my blog posts or whatever random thoughts are up there often. Okay, great. And Twitter handle? Uh, time change. My name with ease. It's a typo. <laughs> okay. Oh, you didn't mean to do it, but it became time change? I used to get typos on my name. I said, I'm going to own it. <laughs> okay. You just went in. That's yeah. actually a great life lesson in itself. It sounds like yeah. what you've done in your career with yeah. a lot of these changes. So, Basically. I'm Rob Conybeer, a founder and managing director at Shasta Ventures, and you've been listening to Launchpad on Business Radio, Sirius XM Channel 132. For more insight from Business Radio, please visit businessradio.wharton.upenn.edu. Thank you.